On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, what's going on? What is going on? We, I'm really excited. We've got a fantastic guest today. Uh, some of our listeners, I'm sure, and and I'm almost diminishing him when I give this as the intro because the guy's done so much cool stuff since then. But have you seen the the movie Top Gun Maverick? Oh, yeah. Heck yeah. Do you, you recall the scene in the beginning where where Tom Cruise, uh, a.k.a. Maverick, is in an experimental aircraft? He's flying over the the, the horizon uh, doing some crazy stuff in an airplane. Heck yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That just, I, that, that's, actually, you know, you, the music, the sound, it was just it's just right there, right? Yeah, as an aside, I absolutely loved it. That was one that was, I think, well worth waiting for. I love the original, and I thought the, I thought the follow up was fantastic as well. And and this is really exciting for me today, really for three reasons. As first, I'm an aviation enthusiast. Uh, I'm a I am an instrument rated pilot. It's purely a hobby for me. Love everything aviation related. Uh, secondly, I've got you know a lot of I guess passion for for military aviation specifically. And then obviously, I'm in the business role right now. So for people that are in, have been engaged in both you know large corporate America, also the startup world, and people that can navigate that environment to mm-hmm. to me is again super impressive. And I've got a guy on here, Ron Higgs, that basically is doing all of those things or has done all those things in his career. Uh, U.S. Naval Academy graduate. Uh, my cousin also graduated from there. I remember being a kid and watching the Blue Angels shoot over the grandstands, and that was one of the things that sparked my interest in aviation. Went on to be a um, a pilot for the U.S. Navy. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but he was flying stuff that had never been flown before. He was wow. flying stuff that was um, U.S. stuff and maybe even some other planes as well. Uh, and just a, a phenomenal career there. And then went to L3 and then did some amazing stuff for Boeing. And then now is is doing a fractional COO and executive consulting. So he's he's coming in as a, as a consultant to help clean up organizations uh, that might might need some help in terms of a little bit of direction, leadership coaching. And so, so you've gone from the two biggest, two giant bureaucracies in the form of the U.S. military and then moving into a company like Boeing and, and now working with these very lean and nimble startups. And uh, it's a heck of a story along the way. So, Ron, I hope that that intro does you justice because I'm very excited about our conversation today. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's start with this. So we'll just kind of run through the trajectory. Naval Academy, how, how did you wind up there? And what was the what sparked your interest with both getting involved in the U.S. military, but also looking at, 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 uh, at the Navy as the option for you? Well, a bit of a long story, but I will I will try to make it fast. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I was a science fiction geek. Uh, love Star Trek, love anything with sort of space stuff, Star Wars, all of it. And uh, it sparked my interest. It's like, you know, I really want to go into space. How do I do that? You know, and then, yeah. so I was like, yeah, I want to become an astronaut. Right? And so I looked around and I always loved airplanes and and I used to go to the library a lot. And I and I credit the the library system with helping me find um, direction in my life. So I used to look, just look at encyclopedias and atlases and started reading about airplanes. And then one day I was in the library and I saw a picture of these airplanes on the ship. It was an aircraft carrier. And I went, that is the coolest thing I have ever seen. Like they're flying and landing those airplanes on the ship. Like I want to do that (laughs) (laughs) right on my way. So I really went in and did the research on like, how do I become an astronaut? How do I, how do I become an astronaut? You know, and there's this path of going and flying for the military. And I looked, there was a a statistic that said the U.S. Naval Academy had the most astronauts at the time. Not sure if it's still true. And so I'm like, okay, that's that's what I want to do. I want to be an officer in the Navy. I want to fly airplanes. I want to be a test pilot. I want to go and become an astronaut and go into space, right? So that's really what led me there. Now, you know, there was a lot of hard work along the way because I realized that, okay, how do you get into the Naval Academy? Again, the library system, other things, because I didn't have anybody in my family, any mentors, anything like that, that 
who could guide me into that. So it's a combination of, you know, reaching out guidance counselors in school, you know, having my mom help me reach out to people, all of that. And, you know, I was lucky enough to, you know, be selected. And one of the processes that I thought was really cool is I got to meet a congressman, right? Because you had that congressional nomination to get in the mail. And I actually got to, the congressman himself uh, at the time, Representative Jim Florio from New Jersey, he sat in his office across from him and he asked me a bunch of questions and said, okay. And then sent me a letter a few weeks later that said he was going to nominate me. But I, I thought it was so cool that I got to meet a real congressman. A little bit different now in terms of meeting congressmen, but I was I was fascinated with the whole process. We, we may not have discussed this one when we first met. I actually grew up in New Jersey. And so I, I Florio, did. I remember... I remember him and being, you know, part of the Jersey political establishment yeah. for sure for a long time. Yeah. 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 And so you arrive at Annapolis and, and what was that like for you? Well, I had to take the path of I went to the Naval Academy prep school first. And it was one of those things where they they take a select uh, group of people who didn't quite uh, qualify to get in the first time and give you opportunity to go to a prep school. And I ended up going to the U.S. Naval Academy Prep School, which located in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Spent the year there uh, learning a lot. I'm glad that I did and forged some really great relationships and then showed up at the Naval Academy ready to go. But it is a shock to the system, um, you know, just coming from a place of a, a young person, a young man, 17 years old, and all of a sudden being thrust in an, into an environment with lots of different people from lots of different places. The United States, I think we take a lot for granted as far as how big the country is and regional diversity and how different people are that are from different regions. You know, I grew up in Camden County, New Jersey, right, in in an all-Black town called Lawnside, and then we were bused to a town in an all-white neighborhood called Haddon Heights, so I went to this school, Haddon Heights High School, high school. But, you know, New Jersey, that area of New Jersey, you know, Philadelphia, that sort of accent, things like that. So you only saw on TV people with Southern accents, you know, people from the West, people from the Midwest. And all of a sudden, you know, here I am in at, at the prep school with people with thick New York accents, people with thick Southern accents that I could barely understand. Boston accents, you know, people from California. I mean, it it would really was fantastic to me. It was a lot to get used to, but it was a, a foreign environment for sure. And we we were thrust into an environment where we all of a sudden had to work together and depend on each other. And you know, we didn't even know each other at the time. So you you forged some strong relationships. Some of those relationships still endure to this day. Yeah, I mean, I I can't as as someone that's never served in in the armed forces or in the military, I have to think that that's got to be, like you said, one of the most shocking things because obviously they're they're stripping away your identity, so you become part of this this cohesive unit, and they're trying to do it with people that are just a lot different. You know, you're occupying that same space with with a variety of people. So was it a good experience? Obviously, you stayed in the Navy for a while and you did some cool stuff. Was was it a good experience at Annapolis? It was a fantastic experience. You know, it's not for everybody. We lost a lot of people along the way. I lost some good friends along the way. You know, there's this combination of military stuff. You know, academics is is really important, you know, and combination of those two things, difficult for a lot of people. And there's a big, you know, there's a heavy academic burden. I think we had an average of between 18 and 21 credit hours per semester, and our minimum was 15 and yeah. I think in most, in a lot of places, your maximum may be 15, you know, so there's a lot of academics there. And again, for, through, through the first year, no one, you don't declare your major until your third semester. So you go through three semesters of hardcore, you know, chemistry, physics, calculus up to differential equations. So everybody graduates with a master of science. So even if you decide to go into at our time, we had people who could major in history, you can major in political science, you can major in economics, you know, those types of things, but they still had a BS, right? Because you had to take, you know, electrical engineering courses, statics, dynamics, thermodynamics, I mean, all sorts of things, right? And those was kind of things weed people out. 
and probably stuff that served you well because you got in there as you said wanting that track to be absolutely to be in aviation being potentially an astronaut and so so i guess how when you're once you're in the academy it's not a given they don't just hand you hand you over the, the keys to an f-14 at that point there's a process to get there so how how challenging was that environment to be chosen as an aviator uh extremely challenging and it changes throughout the years as far as what the Navy needs. So when it's time for you to graduate, the Navy decides, okay, hey, we have we have this many slots for aviators. We have this many slots for Marines. We have this many slots for submarine folks, right? So it all depends. So for me, you, you know, and you get the pick by your order of merit. So you get ranked in the class. We had 1,050 people in our class, and we were ranked from 1 to 1,050. And, uh, you know, that we got the pick and order. And if you didn't, if there were no slots for what you wanted left when it was time for you to pick, then, you know, you had to, you had to go with your second choice. I, I will say this, getting through the Naval Academy all the way through, and it's really hard to sum up that four or for me, five-year experience, including the prep school in a sentence, but relationships were key. You know, my, my best friend today, is my plebe your roommate from the Naval Academy. We, wow. we, we just went out this weekend together. <laughs> yeah. So maintain that relationship for uh, for a lot of years, right? So the relationships, the biggest thing I took away from that and my time in the Navy were relationships. It's amazing because yeah. even even when you're doing the kind of stuff that you that you move forward to do, it still always comes comes down to the people, you know. Uh, so you gra- so you graduate. What happened after that? What was the first deployment? Graduated, went to flight school, spent two years in flight school, got my wings. Flight school, you know, interesting experience too, because um, I, I will say this, when I got my wings, somebody said something to me that I'll never forget. It was one of the more senior officers in um, in the in the training squadron. And when we finished graduation day, and there's a, you know, there's some time between the time you actually finish all your flights and academic things and the time you actually have a ceremony where they pin the wings on your chest. He said, he says, congratulations, you have now been accepted for further training. <laughs> and I don't know why it hit me there, because I should have realized that at the Naval, after graduating from the Naval Academy, because, you know, Naval Academy prep school, one year four years at the Naval Academy. And then all of a sudden, now I'm at the very beginning, right? I am the most junior of junior officers in flight school, starting, starting something again. So I should have realized that at the time where it was, congratulations, you have now been accepted for further training. And that sort of carries on throughout your life, right? You, you hit something, you get to some big milestone and you're like, man, I'm so glad I got that degree, that MBA, whatever it is you get. And you realize it's like, okay, <laughs> net further training required. You've now been accepted for further training. So there's flight school, you get your wings and then you go and you fly a specific aircraft. You get selected to fly a specific aircraft. For me, it was the S3 Viking. So then I have to go and spend a year learning how to fly that aircraft. And what did the right. S3 Viking do? What kind of plane was that? That was a carrier-based submarine hunter. So it was an anti-submarine warfare aircraft. They have they have, they've been retired for uh, a number of years, uh, and I, I I miss it. It was great. Four person off a carrier. Uh, I had a great time uh, flying uh, that airplane. But now, again, was... once you get to your you learn how to fly that airplane, and then you finish that training squadron. You go to your active duty squadron where you're then deploying in a carrier and then once you get to that squadron there's a whole path of things you need to learn right you have to get a minimum qualification yeah you have to get a qualification to go fly in formation you have to get a qualification to lead a section you have to get a then a mission commander or aircraft commander qualification and then a mission commander qualification it never stops <laughs> so what was that two two questions for you around that first what was it like being deployed on a carrier i guess would be question number 1 the second question is how the heck do you land an airplane on an aircraft carrier? I mean, well, it's, it... very carefully. I mean, there's lots of training. You you don't see Air Force pilots necessarily practicing landings. You'll always see Navy, uh, naval aviators pa- uh, practicing landings. Um, but you know, the coolest thing is that they did it with hooks and wires when they first, uh, you know, first came up with aircraft carriers, and we still catch airplanes with hooks and wires today. I mean, I find that. Uh, I find it pretty fascinating. The one thing I'll say is there's there is uh, 
there's one way to do it right and a lot of ways to you know to screw it up and so uh takes a lot of training takes a lot of practice you know you have to um you, you have to be dedicated and you have to you have to know your aircraft you have to know <laughs> yourself uh and your crew and you got to do it right every time so th well, there is a lot of pressure because you're trying to put this uh, thing down on something really, sorry yeah, you're trying to put this put this airplane down on something that's also moving <laughs> it's, yeah it's, i i tell you what is thrilling and naval aviation is responsible for some of the most exciting moments of my life it is also responsible for some of the most terrifying moments of my life uh you know sometimes in the same day uh so in in at night you know a whole different ball game but there is i i don't think the movies there's not one movie out there that could adequately portray sort of the misery of living on the navy ship uh but it, 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 there's nothing like it. it. And you mentioned the the uh, the Top Gun sequel in the beginning. There was the cinematography, the cinematography in that movie was fantastic enough yeah. to where I was lucky enough to see it on the big screen. And and it did bring back some memories and chills because some of the again some of the video sequences were that good. There was one in particular that I was looking back on Tom Cruise as he went off the catapult on the carrier, and I was like. You know, that's it <laughs> that, that brought back some some good memories now when you guys are on the boat as as the as the aviators i'd imagine you, you guys were kind of the studs on the ship Did, was was there better treatment for the aviators were you guys kind of a notch above everybody else on the ship no you know i don't think so naval officers are naval officers it, it's, it's very interesting because there there's um there's a bunch of different entities right there's several different squadrons that make up the air wing the squadrons are located in different places, and then the ship is a different entity than the air wing, right? So when deploy, all the airplanes in the air wing comes onto the ship, and we don't, we typically didn't interact too much with the with the folks on the ship. It's funny, maybe sort of a love hate relationship, right? So there are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of, there was uh, sometimes things were a little contentious and then sometimes not. But for me, you know, I never really considered myself a notch above anyone, right? People make yeah. their choices for whatever reasons they do. And, you know, one of my best friends who I ended up being the godfather of his child is someone that he was a ship's company guy mm -hmm. uh, that I met on the ship. And one day we just sat together in the wardroom, which is where the officers eat and struck up a friendship that again endures to this day. So you, again, it's all about relationships, yeah. right? I, I, I did my best to learn as much about the ship as I could when I was on it. Right. Because I, you know, I'm wearing a Navy uniform and I don't know anything about ships <laughs> or <laughs> let's say very little, not anything. And so I was like, well, I'm, I'm on a Navy ship. Let me learn. Let me go up to the bridge when my when my buddy is standing watch and stand next to him and see what he does. And I did that a few times. That's cool. So after the Viking, how long did that stint last and what came after that? Typically, your tours are about three years and then uh, you move on from a sea tour to a shore tour. And I was lucky enough to get selected to go to the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School. Now, that's an application process. And luckily enough, I got selected to go. So for me, that was uh, that was quite an experience. You know, any Navy astronaut, you know, you know, Alan Shepard went to the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School. I mean, a lot. There's a long list of folks that were lucky enough to go to that institution. And it's a combination of uh, a lot of academics around flying, a lot of academics around aircraft, weapon and sensor systems, uh, aircraft systems in general. And then the program that I ended up going through focused more on aircraft systems. So radar systems, electro-optic and infrared systems, navigation systems, communication systems, things we can't tell you about, things like that. So year-long program, uh, pretty intense Got to fly a lot of different airplanes. Got to fly Air Force. You know, the more airplanes you fly, the better you do. So I got to fly an Air Force F-16. We had the Havilland Beavers at the school, right? So you go yeah. from something that's not high tech at all to something, you know, extremely high tech. And uh, I was lucky. Got to fly a, a DC-3, a B-25. Really cool stuff. A few Air Force airplanes here and there. 
It was uh, it was a lot of fun, but I have to tell you, it was a lot of work. It was probably the most difficult school that I've ever been through in terms of you know academics, flying. It's just a lot, no, <laughs> a lot of stuff to learn and unlearn. So when they were when you're testing out these aircraft, are are you moving from one sort of type and one aircraft to a, another on a daily basis, or are you focusing on one at a time for a kind of intense period of time? No, you you actually focus not on the aircraft themselves, but flying quality. So there's a whole academic progression to where okay, hey, we're get, we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some, you know, lift, thrust, weight, and drag. So in this one, we're going to talk about in, in this particular area, we're going to talk about air traffic control, aircraft control, and aircraft control systems, and how many different control systems they are, and how many they work. Right. So you go through a bunch of aircraft. This aircraft has a specific control system. This other one has it. This one has yet a different one. Let's compare those. Right. So that when you become a test pilot, you want, you know, when you're out there doing real testing, you want to experience with as many different things as you can. Right. And then you move through engine performance. Right. Then you go through there's an area where we, where we go through performance of aircraft in as they're doing supersonic speeds. Right. So obviously you have to have an aircraft that's capable of uh, of of going supersonic to do that. So how to flight control, you know, how do the how does the feel of the aircraft change, how to how do the laws of flight change during that speed, things like that. So we there's a there's a pretty specific accurate academic curriculum that you go through. And which airplanes you fly are sort of based on where you are in the curriculum. So for me, you know, hey, I'm learning about ra radar systems. Okay, let's have this aircraft with an air-to-ground radar system, an air-to-air -air radar system, and then radar systems that work on different principles. So. And now, why did you have a beaver? Because <laughs> for the listeners that aren't familiar with aviation, you know, you went, you went on one on one hand from an F-15, so, you know, Air Force fighter jet, kind of ubiquitous, in, at least around the world, to the Havilland beaver, which is basically guys in Alaska and northern Canada loading these things up with and flying into remote lakes. It's a really different airplane. Yeah, flying qualities and performance. You you you, you really there's a huge difference in flying qualities and performance from the Havilland Beaver to uh, a high performance aircraft like an F A eighteen, an F sixteen, or something like that, right? An F sixteen is a fly by wire airplane, right? And you've got other airplanes that you know that the Havilland Beaver is strictly you know cables, pulleys connected to flight controls. <laughs> You know, things yeah. like that. So typically they have different levels of flying qualities and performance that are, that are all valuable for test pilots to have experience and know how all of those things, know and understand how all of those things work. What was the most fun that you had d during that phase of your career? Funny thing is we had, we had these big tires on the De Havilland Beaver and we landed it on the grass, which I thought was just the coolest thing ever yeah. between, you know, <laughs> This high performance airplanes off of aircraft carriers off of runways. And then here's this airplane that rotates at something like 50 knots. And then we laughed, we landed it on the grass. I I I know it sounds strange, but that was probably some of the most fun I've ever had. We we talked a little bit about this uh, when we first met. Is is uh, the most fun I have ever had flying an airplane. This is now about 15 years ago. I went to Alaska and flew super cubs on floats for a week when I got my float plane uh, endorsement. And it, it, you know, you're going super slow. The plane's barely making it canvas wings, but it's just, it was, it felt like real AV, you know, it felt, it felt like you were the Wright brothers in like a, a flight, not an airplane. You're in like a yeah. machine that somehow flies. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's, and you know, we had a couple of gliders and we used the beaver and we had an otter too, that uh, yeah. we towed the gliders with. So, very uh, cool. A lot of so, fun. I mean, so I would imagine it's, at some point during your test flight career, you, you scared yourself a little bit. Some things happened in the airplane that were scary. Is that a safe assumption? Yes. How do you, um, this question just popped into my mind here. So you've, you're in the airplane, something bad happens. I think every pilot has scared themselves. I've twice that really stick out with me where I've you know done something they shouldn't have done and you're, and you're, and you're frightened in the airplane. What are you telling yourself um, to get back in and sort of get back in the cockpit again and uh, and move forward from that? You know, I'm, I, I mentioned to you earlier, so I was a contributing author to a book called The Winner's Mindset. And I actually, my, and it was uh, the main author just brought together several different authors and we all wrote a chapter from different perspectives 
on this. And, and my chapter was entitled A Mindset Shaped by Naval Aviation. And there's a couple of things that 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 I could, if, if you don't mind, I'll talk about this, I think. Please, yeah. Because one of the first things that we learned in flight school was our priorities. And those priorities were aviate, navigate, communicate, right? Aviate, keep the airplane in the air, execute emergency procedures, all those sorts of things. Navigate, go from point A to point B, keep yourself predictable. Or if you can't make it to point B, find yourself a suitable location and be predictable as far as where you're going, right? Then communicate. So if things are all happening at the same time. Those are your priorities. But I'm going to back up. So you remember every single flight has a brief, right? And then you execute the flight and then there's a debrief. Every single flight has a mission, right? And you know what the mission is. So if you know you, you know what your mission is, right, when you go out, whether you're training, whether you're doing flight tests, or whether you're out in the fleet, or whether you're going out in wartime and you're actually flying a combat mission, you know and understand your mission, right? You have a plan, right? So that plan is what you, you have a flight plan. You go over the plan first. You execute that plan, and you come back, right? then you have those priorities that you have to think about, right? So things, when you're flying an airplane, when you take off, you never know where you're going to land. You never know what happens. They're so dynamic. There's so many factors beyond your control. The weather, in case of combat, the enemy, right? All sorts of things, right? And so understand the fact that have a plan, execute that plan, but be ready when things don't go according to plan. Right. And so the more of those things you understand, you understand the mission, you understand your priorities, right? You understand your plan when things sort of go off the or off the rails, you know. And if you understand that mission and you have those priorities, I think you can you can uh you can work your way through it. And then in that book, I talked about how I kind of used how I think like an aviator, both kind of in the business world and in my real life too, because there are a lot of people who get paralyzed when things don't go according to plan. Mm -hmm. Right. And then if you, if you go with the intent, it's like something's going to go off the rails. I just need to be ready for it at any time, because during my time in flight school, it's actually pretty easy to learn the basics and the mechanics of flying, as you probably know. We spent a lot of time talking about emergencies. Hey, what's going to happen? What if you lose your radius right here? What are you going to do? What if you mm -hmm. lose your engine right here? What are you going to do? Where are you going to land? When are you going to do this? Right. And so it's always thinking of, at every phase in your fight, thinking if this goes wrong, this is what I'm going to do. If I'm here, I got this much fuel, I can make it here. Right. And so you're always thinking about things that can go wrong. And then when it does, you're like, okay, just lost my engine. There's my alternate field right there. I'm going to execute my emergency landing procedure and and go ahead and land, right? So that's how you stay focused with all that that uh, training and preparation. Is there one experience that you remember from your time uh, as a, a test pilot? I guess for for lack of a better term, that really stands out, that stands above every everything else. Well, not necessarily that, but I will tell you this: when I was on, I was a junior guy. And I was in the right front seat of an S3 with a senior guy. And at night, we had a catapult shot at night in our um, our attitude indicator or the pilot's attitude indicator failed, mm. right? So that's for those uninitiated, right? Tells yeah. you up, down, left, right, turning. It tells you sort of where you are and what your orientation is in space. Very important, especially Particularly at night, night <laughs> off of a carrier. Right. So we have, you know, we have redundant sources of those things. And the pilot's like, hey, my attitude indicator failed. He goes, get me a source, get me a source. And I, you know, I was a new guy, so I really wasn't sure how to do it. And so he luckily we got off the front of the carrier, established a positive rate of climb, and then he was able to switch his own. Right. And he just <laughs> this is sort of the debrief part right where we go back we landed and we had a debrief and man he he lit he lit me up right you need to know that you know and it wasn't politically correct either but it was <laughs> it was necessary and i learned a lot from it so again every flight brief execute the flight debrief you always debrief and you learn the most from the debrief and so for me i learned a lot so yeah. now let's fast forward two years ahead and i am in the right seat again 
with a junior guy. I am the senior guy. There's a guy there that's junior. He says, as, as soon as we launch off the catapult, as soon as we start going down the catapult, he he says, oh, you know, expletive. And he is like, I lost my source. And then I unlatched my harness. I reached up and I, I switched the source. And before we got, and this is about two and a half seconds to the end of the catapult, right? I was able to switch uh, his source and and he and restore his attitude indicator before we got off the front of the ship. Hmm. I think that that saved our lives because right. I'm not sure what he as a junior guy would have done. Right. I, I, I can't say that for sure, but, it, <laughs> sure. you know, so the, there's that whole circle of learning during a debrief. Right. It, and a lot of people um, think that feedback is sort of a four letter word. Right. And I think you'll find veterans in general aviators. Right. Just seek feedback all the time because we know it makes us better, even if it's not the best you know, feedback. And then, you know, we were younger folks and it wasn't delivered in quite such a politically correct manner, but that feedback from that incident, I believe saved my life in the future. Hmm. That's amazing. And so you go, and this must've been an interesting transition because you go from an adrenaline fueled job with obviously a lot of academics and hard studying behind that, but, but really a lot of adrenaline. And now you leave the Navy and you head into the corporate world which I imagine is very different. <laughs> so tell me about what that progression was like. Well, I will tell you this in the Navy. So I decided to go this route. I became an aerospace engineering duty officer in the Navy after flying for a few years, which meant I moved over. I left flying and moved over in the program management and acquisition. And I did that for quite a few years before I retired. So I was ready. So yeah. I was sort of out of the aviation game long before I actually flying before I before I left the Navy. So I spent about five or six years in the Navy after my you know, flying and doing this program management acquisition. And I worked directly with defense contractors on future naval aviation systems and space systems as well. And so for me, I, I wanted to do something different, but I wasn't sure how. Mm -hmm. So I, I took a job with a company and I found this job with a company and they provided, it was a consulting company and they provided consultants to Boeing and they needed people for the, what was, it was the PA program, but it was before, you know, it was long before, you know, first flight of a, of a real PA. And so I worked for that company and the idea was that company, they also had consultants for other things, right? So I could start doing things that were familiar to me aerospace engineering kind of things that were systems engineering things that were familiar to me and then maybe make an escape out of you know out of aerospace and defense you know if i wanted to i just wanted to see other aspects of it so i worked for this company for a couple of years but as a as a military guy you know we're really used to this there's a defined path in the military that's kind of up or out there's a fine career path and so now to go someplace to where you can sort of stagnate and sit there and there's no real, there's not much of a hierarchy. So I could have sat in the same job for the rest of my career, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that was to me, I, I needed a clear path to increase, increased responsibility, increased learning, you know, things like that. And, uh, and I decided to go and do sales and business development for another defense contractor because again looking for that escape from the aerospace and defense community <laughs> sales and business development this is a great place to go because those are transferable skills outside of you know aerospace and defense so i'll do that for three years so that time i spent doing that was long enough for me to realize that i didn't want to spend the rest of my career doing sales and business development. um but again in this path of learning right one of my passions is learning, right? I avail myself of every opportunity that I can to learn. And um, so I learned a lot about sales, business development, marketing. Hopefully it's like, okay, I can take that knowledge with me somewhere else, right? But this is not what I want to do for the rest of my career. And that's when I actually found a job at Boeing and Boeing was looking for uh, ramping up P8 production in, um, in Seattle. And uh, one of somebody in my network says, "Hey, Boeing's looking for P8 flight test folks. Yeah, I think you'd be a good candidate." Okay, so I applied for it and got it, and I ended up becoming a, a P8 flight test guy at uh, at Boeing. So, 
working, flying airplanes on their first flight out of the factory, working with the government air crew. When the airplane comes out of the factory, it goes through a series of ground tests, flight tests, things like that. And then the Navy flies away with it. And I was, you know, one of the folks involved in that process. And the P8 to educate our listeners. And uh, is that is that the old P3? So is that, a, is that or is it is the refueling? It container? is the replacement for the P3 based okay. on a commercial 737. Yeah. So. Okay. So it's surveillance, basically. Is that accurate? Uh, summary, anti-submarine warfare. Okay. Got it. Got it. And so the PA Lots project- Lots of other things, but mostly made for maritime patrol. Got it. Got it. And you were involved in Boeing for quite some time doing- Yeah, doing about that. six years. So I spent yeah. four years in flight operations. And then, you know, I enjoyed my time in flight operations, but again, uh, in flying, like anybody would, I got to do some really, really cool things, uh, work with some great people, but- of the path to increase responsibility again wasn't clear. You know, I wanted the path to more responsibility to where I would be, you know, somebody, you know, hey, what would it be like to run a small company and things like that, right? Because I, I learned a lot to that point in my community, a lot about leadership, a lot about all the different operating functions of the business. So, you know, I wanted to take a different path. And so I ended up becoming, I ended up moving to a different Boeing business unit and actually got put in charge of delivering all of those P8s to the Navy. Hmm. Um, so a different, a different job working with the same people, but it was now my responsibility to get all of those aircraft delivered. Because I, I remember having daily, almost daily interactions with the person who had the job before me. And I joke about this. I used to tell this guy how to do his job all the time. And uh, he and I used to banter back and forth, you know, and then all of a sudden his job sort of opened and I applied for it and got it. And, he, and he's like, OK, <laughs> now you got to put your money where your mouth is. And uh, and he back to you and I are still friends to this day. And um, so that, that was a different perspective. It didn't come with any flying. But now, I, like I said, I was in charge uh, of that whole process. And right. uh, and that was interesting. And. For me, Boeing, as as you know, big companies, big big bureaucracies, and I and I just had this calling to just go and find out what it was like to work for startups, work for smaller companies, in, in sort of a principal position. So I, I, uh, when the time came, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go off on my own as a consultant and uh, and and try to find a job at a startup, and I actually. I actually found a job. I actually found a startup. I, I've been involved in four startups total. Um, and there was a there, there was a longer path to that, but that's sort of when I became interested in startups. And then I realized that my skill set was transferable, right? And then I decided to leave Boeing and go off on my own. And I've been self-employed since. Um, I've, I've taken a couple of short stints in W-2 jobs, but... Uh, just ended up returning to self-employment. So what's the biggest thing now that you've learned working in the startup world? And yeah, because because you think very different probably than Boeing and also the the federal government, the military, changes can happen a lot faster. Um, probably individual personalities can make a far bigger impact in a tiny or small, nimble organization than they would in a large organization. What is that? What's that like for you? What are some of the lessons that you've learned and some of the, I guess, some of the things that these organizations need why are they why are they bringing in ron higgs to to help out um in 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 a startup organization well a lot of parts of that question but one thing is is that a lot of you know in big companies people's jobs are very clearly defined <laughs> right right and in startups you know if there's a you have to be comfortable working outside of your job description so one of the startups I was in, you know, hey, what title do you want? And so they're like, okay, we'll make you the director of program management. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I come in, I'm on director of program management, and I look around and say, you know, our website really isn't that good. It needs to be redone. So I was like, I'll do it, right? It was like, you got the money? I mean, do we have the money to do it? Do it. So I ended up working with a marketing person and redoing the website. And then there's a lot of stuff. I essentially looked around and, and started almost taking on kind of a chief of staff role where I was coordinating meetings, getting people to talk to each other, because, you know, sometimes you just get in and you see, in my experience in big companies in the military, 
allowed me to see like, man, this is this people aren't talking to each other. Why not? And the strangest thing is I, I have a I went to the Naval Postgraduate School, part of that long Navy career. Two years of that was spent in the Naval Postgraduate School, and I got a master's degree in systems engineering. And my education in systems engineering, ironically enough, is what's helped me the most in the business and startup world because you know, looking at everything as a system, right? Looking at what impact one part of the system has on the other and understanding relationships between all the operating functions of the business to move the business forward, right? And so that's one of the things that I can help with. So for me, in general, you know, leadership, leadership is, you know, multifaceted, right? When there are qualities good to a good leader and there's things good leaders need to do, but how you lead a company as a startup, how you lead a company of five people is much different than how you lead a company of 25 people, which is then much different than 300 people, a thousand people, so forth and so on. Right. And then putting together the military is highly structured. Right. And so that organizational structure helps. It's like, hey, let's have some kind of an organizational structure here so that we know who's responsible for what and where decisions are being made. And I'm not talking about going in and just, you know, it, instilling military style discipline in places that don't have any things that are simple to us that were in the military. Like, hey, you need to have an org chart because you need to know who's responsible for what, who's accountable you know, who's responsible, who's accountable, um, and how, where those decisions are are being made. And those are the things that I can, you know, those are the things I think just about anybody in the military government organization and help with. Well, it seems like it, people that, that I've met and entrepreneurs that have, that have run several businesses, there's many times a great idea. Uh, is usually some kind of a strong personality behind that idea, the visionary, the passionate person that's putting it out there in the world. But none of them work unless you have the operational and systems guy behind the scenes. Like you think of, um, you know, Steve Jobs, for example, and um, his sidekick. I'm spacing, but you the uh, oh man, I'm spacing out. But his his business partner in the early days of Apple. Um, there's always that person that that's helping to to get the organizational structure in place. Is is that something that you have seen as well in your experience in the startup world? Very much, and in fact, it's something that I do. So I will um, uh, I'll shorten the story. By pure luck, I ended up becoming COO of a small company. I mean, pure luck and networking. I'm like, this is it. This is great. I love this. I, again, from my systems engineering expertise, right? It's like, hey, I know just enough about all these operating functions of the business to be dangerous, right? And I know who to get, who to understand, how to get people to talk to each other, and how to get the leadership team um, to work together. Now, I lost that job due to COVID, right? So mm -hmm. I was in that job for 90 days, the hard hit. So I went back and I rebranded my business and myself as a fractional COO. So I would come in and do this on a fractional basis. And if you're familiar with EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, mm -hmm. based on two books, Traction and Rocket Fuel, I think yep. Gino Wickman um, is the author. Well, those books, I, the basic premise behind those two books is there's two types of people, visionaries and integrators. Visionaries are exactly what you described. Integrators, exactly what you described. Typically, you can't be both and you don't want to be both, right? And an organization needs both of those kinds of people to move ahead, right? They need somebody with the big idea, somebody with the passion for the idea, because typically visionaries do not are not interested in detail. Right. <laughs> You just right? do it. And it's like, hey, we just need to make this happen. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, but the integrator is the person that can make that happen. Right. And so, yes, quite. And I've worked as a fractional integrator, uh, you know, for companies operating on that uh, EOS system. And I've also, you know, in my fractional COO work, just gone and, you know, if you look at a CEO, a typical CEO that's working by themselves or maybe just overwhelmed with a few things difficult to let go, you know, hey, read this book, <laughs> you know, because it really is, it really does take a combination of those two people to move, you know, business forward. So that happens a lot out there. And then the people who, um, the EOS folks say that there's actually only one integrator for every four visionaries. 
companies, right? So there are a lot of companies out there that are just operating with visionaries who need integrators, you know, to help for that balance. Yeah. And who's an ideal client for you? If some somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, because uh, I, I will say even as, you know, we're, obviously the mothership is Raymond James Financial Services, but through our independent channel, we're we're operating as an independent office. And so as the as as the as the entrepreneur in here, you do recognize very quickly that that um, that you need you need help getting some of the systems in place. But from your perspective, if someone's listening to this, who's the ideal guy that you would or woman that you would want to work with um, in their business? Where is the business in its life cycle? How many employees are we talking? Uh, wh where do you think you bring the most the most skill set to bear? That's difficult to say, but I'll put it like this. So I also work with a business system called Predictable Success. And that talks about companies going through life cycle stages, right? And not to go through all of them, but there's one stage called early struggle, meaning you've got a startup and they're just looking for a profitable and sustainable market, right? They're not yet self-sufficient, right? They need to find a profitable and sustainable market before whatever seed capital that they have runs out, right? That's a good place. And that that can be any size because there are few, there are some companies out there that may get VC funding and they may get funding from a lot of places, but they're still not self-sufficient, right? And they may have this illusion of self-sufficiency because, you know, yeah. because of the money coming in, right? And so helping those companies get um get an organizational structure in place, get a decision method making methodology in place. Right. And then to have make sure that the leadership team all working as a team and making their decisions for uh, for the best of the enterprise and not just for their particular um, vertical. Right? right. So there there's another space where companies grow. They've grown. They found that tropical, profitable and sustainable market and they're growing and they're doing really well. Right. But now. They're adding revenue and resources at the same time, because when they were small, right, they were delivering their product or service in this environment of relative simplicity. Let's say they only have five people in one product. So things are easy. Things are simple. Things are fun. Everybody, everything's going right. And then all of a sudden they start to grow. It's like, oh, man, we got clients. <laughs> we yep. need to grow. We have more clients. What are we going to do? Right. So they start hiring people. And all of a sudden you have 25, 30 people. And then decision-making slows down, maybe some quality suffers and things like that. Why? Because I don't have systems and processes in place, right? right? That's another good place, right? And they may not even have an org chart, right? Show me a company that doesn't have an org chart. That's a good place. That's a great entry point for me to go in with an org chart, to go in and help with an org chart. And then also to get the right person in the right seat because mm -hmm. small companies, you know, tend, you know, the job that gets done tends to depend on the human being that's in that role. And the role gets defined by the person that's in that role. So you may have somebody on the leadership team that's doing facilities, you know, the website and, and something else. Right. As the company grows, you need to clearly define roles. Like who's responsible for this? Who's who's a responsible, the people doing the work, and then who's accountable, the person leading those people so who is that and then what do we what does the company as a whole need that person to be able to do right because i was in an environment one time where we had a director it's like hey here's a director this person is the director of x department but that person's not good with people and we don't give them any people management responsibilities right it's like well no right the organization as a whole has grown up now so we can't afford to have anyone with the title of director that doesn't have any people management responsibilities, that doesn't have any strategic responsibility. So you need to clearly define what the company needs out of that role and put the right, right person in it. And sometimes the person that's in there isn't the right person. And so as, as somebody coming in from the outside, I have sort of a dispassionate view of the company, which means that I'm not privy to the internal politics, You know, who's been there the longest, who's friends with whom, those types of things. And it's like, hey, the person that you have in this role isn't the right person. And here's why. And I, yeah. I'm sorry they've been with the company for so long. But, you know, if yeah. you're going to grow, you're not going to grow as long as this person is in that role kind of thing. So, so if people are listening to this and and uh, how how do they find you? We'll, we'll close it up with that. So if, they, if, if what we've talked about today and uh, resonates with them and people realize they need this kind of help, 
how do they find you personally? Uh, LinkedIn is the best way, right? Ron Higgs on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I may be the only one, maybe not. But, uh, you know, there's a picture of an airplane in my background picture. That's how you find me. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> that's the best place. To, that really is the best place to find me. Podcasts like this. I have a website, www.wolfmanagementsolutions.com. But typically, I meet people through referrals, yeah. through LinkedIn. And if you're going to that website, it's usually just because you're trying, you're going to that website to check me out, right? I, I don't do my, I don't get any business from that website. And, and that's really the best place. Awesome. Well, Ron, I, I can't, again, thank you enough for, for joining me today. Uh, I could take about two, three hours talking to you and going over all this stuff. <laughs> you and, know, uh, time just flew by. I thought here, I thought we were just been talking for about 15 minutes, man. It's been a while. Yeah, exactly. But it was really awesome. And I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk to me. And, and yeah, please, anybody listening, if, if, uh, if you feel like Ron can help you out, either reach out to me and I can pass on his contact information or you can find him on LinkedIn. You know, one more thing I want to add is I have a, a strong network and I try to surround myself with with people. And what I do really is I help people find the best person to help them. So if, if I am not the best person to help you, I know, I guarantee you I know someone who is. Absolutely. All right, gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Ron, what a great guest you were. I, I learned so much and man, what a resume. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's it's no joke. I I, I looked yeah. up the clock here too, and I was like, oh, we got it for like two more minutes. Yeah, but uh, you, you you could go hours on this stuff. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been great talking with you. You bet. Thank you so much, and Brent. Thank you for hosting, and thank you for bringing him on as a guest. You always get great guests, and I learned a ton. Of course, our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.